Genesis chapter 33. We'll look at the entire chapter together, Lord willing, tonight, but I want to draw your attention down to verse number 11, just to kind of set the tone and get our mind around where we're going. And for broader context, we are looking at Jacob returning to Canaan after leaving Laban's. And uh, here is his encounter as he meets his brother Esau. Genesis chapter 33 and verse number 11. Jacob says, Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, that is, Jacob urged Esau, and he, Esau, took it. He took the blessing that Jacob had provided. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you will help us to understand and know in a greater way your faithfulness to us. Help us to rest in that. And Lord, I pray that you would show us ourselves in Jacob tonight. Show us ourselves uh, in other characters that we'll encounter in this story. But above all, Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up. This is, uh, this is an important chapter, and it connects some key events in the narrative between Jacob and Joseph. And God, I pray that you'll help me to do the Scriptures justice tonight, that we'll be able to see Genesis 33 in a light that perhaps we haven't considered it before. And I'll thank you for what you accomplish in helping us to look more like Christ than when we came. I'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes forgiveness can be difficult, can't it? Many reconciliations have broken down because both parties have come prepared to forgive and unprepared to be forgiven, someone once said. A man named John Oglethorpe. Now, I know a little bit of the history of Oglethorpe. I grew up in Georgia, and there's a whole place called Oglethorpe, the Oglethorpe College, and, and uh, Oglethorpe was an Indian, and uh, or Native American. <clears throat> a man named John Oglethorpe, in talking to John Wesley, once made the comment, I never forgive. Mr. Wesley wisely replied, Then, sir, I hope that you never sin. Think that one through. So Jacob here is returning to Canaan. He's leaving, he's left Laban, and last time together, just for those who weren't with us perhaps, we we really delved into Jacob's encounter at Peniel where he saw, he wrestled with what the Bible says, a man all night long until the daybreak. And then he limped away from that encounter with the blessing of the Lord on him, with a name change. His name changed from Jacob to Israel because uh, as a prince he had power with God. Now, sandwiched, Around that, okay, the bread, if you will, with that being the, the meat in the middle, the bread on either side of that was he was being hotly pursued by Laban for about a week who finally caught up with him. And then they made a truce and they said, okay, we're going to go separate ways because God had showed up to Laban in a dream and said, don't mess with Jacob for good or for evil. Either way, you leave him alone. And so God had protected Jacob there. So then Jacob, you know, gets ready to meet Esau because he hears report that Esau is coming with about 400 of his men. I don't know, maybe they were down, you know, doing some kingdom furthering work in the land of Seir where Esau is from. You know, he's got to get ready to make all these dukes of Edom. Uh, got to give them some land somewhere along the way. Maybe that's what they were doing, but I don't know. Jacob doesn't know that, and at least the text doesn't tell us. And so here comes Esau with this huge band of people. And Jacob, you know, has made the journey all the way from Haran. And that's a long way to go. That's a long way far, far in a distant land that Jacob has come from. And it's all been journey, uh, journeying together with his family and all that God's blessed him with. So he gets word that Esau's coming and he sends his family out to be a buffer. And he's alone. That's where he begins uh, to wrestle with this man through the night, and then the day breaks, and the rest of the account I shared with you a moment ago. So then once that concludes, Jacob then lifts up his eyes in chapter 33, and behold, here comes Esau. <gasps> the suspense. What's going to happen between Jacob and Esau? I mean, the last time we encountered these two together, it didn't go so well for Esau, and Jacob had to hightail it out of there. 
because he was afraid for his life. Jacob has every right to be concerned, don't you think? That Esau is not going to be quite friendly to him when they meet. I mean, after all, if he's anything like Mr. Oglethorpe, then Jacob doesn't have a chance in the water. Well, Jacob's going to try to do all he can. I think there's a little bit of guilt plaguing Jacob's conscience. Maybe some of that is catching up with him. And uh, we're, we're going to see some things through this passage as he returns to Canaan. The main thing I want to point out to you is I cannot escape the notice of divine intervention. It's like Jacob does everything he can. And, and uh, lest uh, anything be said that Jacob did this and it was Jacob's wits and Jacob's shrewdness and how smart Jacob was and how he played favors to Esau and how he you know, gave these gifts and, and he appeased the wrath of Esau. I don't see that being able to be said because well, Esau didn't come needing to be appeased. Esau, this was a total surprise to him that Jacob is even going to offer this gift and this blessing to him. Why? Because, well, somewhere along the way, God had already done some work in Esau's heart and life. And I'll point out a phrase that both of them mentioned that kind of stood out to me and and stood out to others. I think Spurgeon had a whole message outlined off of just these two phrases. I'm not that eloquent, so you'll have to bear with me. But I want to tell you tonight, friend, God is fully capable. Listen to me now. God is fully capable of carrying out His promises in spite of our shortcomings. Maybe that will solidify itself as we look at the account here with Jacob and Esau and as Jacob settles in Shechem. Friend, I want you to leave here tonight knowing that you can full well trust God to take care of His yea Let God be true and every man a liar, Paul said. God's going to hold up His end of what He says. He doesn't need any help from us. Jacob, He doesn't need any help from you. That's Jacob here in this passage. He doesn't need any extra outside help. God can do what He said He would do. God promised Jacob He would bring him back into the land. Jacob you know, said, since God's promised to be with me, then He's going to be my God, I'm going to serve Him, and I'm going to give Him tithes of all. That was all the way back in chapter 28. We're in chapter 33. And so now Jacob still is just... But how reluctant are we sometimes, just like Jacob, to still try to work things out and still try to help God along? And God doesn't need our help. Friend, I want you to worry about your yea being yea, and your nay being nay. God can hold up His word... But how good are you at holding up yours? That's something we need to learn from Jacob. We need to learn that from him. Let God take care of his yay. You just worry about your own yays and nays. Let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. The scripture says that, right? How faithful, how gracious is our God. If we serve the God of Jacob, which I'm a child of Abraham by faith, and so the God of Jacob... El Elohi Israel, the God, God of Israel. He is the God of Israel. He's my God. The same one. And so, we look and we see His faithfulness. And yet, as I look at Jacob, and I say, okay, Jacob, we are on the precipice of chapter 34. If I'm going to be a good Bible expositor, I'm going to have to cover that chapter with you guys. I appreciate your prayers as we come through Genesis chapter 34. We're on the precipice of Genesis chapter 34. And that's some hard things. There's some hard things in chapter 34 to wrap your mind around. What is going on? Jacob is supposed to be protected by God. Well, you will be under God's protection if you follow God's leading to the place where He leads you. I'm of the opinion, and I think I have good textual support for this opinion, that Jacob didn't go all the way. He got comfortable. And it brought a lot of problems, a lot of trouble to his family. Oh friend, how faithful is our God! How gracious is our God! And yet how selfish are we! How sinful are we! 
in comparison to His holiness and righteousness. And, and He is perfect. And yet I look at myself and I see my own shortcomings. I see, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I look back and I see where I could have gone all the way for God. But I didn't. Jacob could have gone all the way. But he held back. And he only went to Shechem. He didn't make it all the way to Bethel. Yet. He will go back to Bethel. But he's going to go back there with more heartache and more sorrow than he would have had had he just gone to Bethel to begin. Isn't that where the Lord told him to, to head back to? I think if we look back in his story, you'll see that. So, so here we continue the saga. right? You know what a saga is? It's a story that unfolds a little bit more about uh, Jacob and Israel. And so this is really... A saga that is part of a larger story. We have to include Isaac in this. And we go all the way back to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Jacob being his son. Jacob and Esau are twins. And this story teaches us both some moral lessons. I hope that you'll look at Jacob real close here in chapter 33 and say, Yeah, I should do that. Uh, no, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> okay, Don't just take God's stamp of approval on everything that Jacob's doing here. Can I tell you there's a lot of a lot of Jewish people today that even look to some of what Jacob does, and they justify shrewdness in light of this. And when it comes to ethics, some of them might be lacking in some of their practice of ethic. Are you with me? You know, it's, it's almost an honor for a Jew to be shrewd, and the shrewdness that comes out. If you don't believe that, just walk down the Jerusalem Market Street for a little while as an American, and you'll find out really quick what I mean about Jewish shrewdness. <laughs> Yeah, don't go in their tent with money and expect to come out. <laughs> That's, it's their money the moment you step over that threshold. Uh, yeah, you'll get some goods, and I'm not saying they won't you know, honor your dollars, but uh, you'll walk about four stores down and get the same article for about, oh, 10% of what you paid for it back there four stores ago. <laughs> well, they look to this account. They, they look to Jacob as, as their founder, right? As one of their patriarchs and they say look at the shrewdness of Jacob and they almost put it on a pedestal and say you know so you wonder why some of them have have fared in business the way that they have and and why it seems that you know they seem to prosper I don't know that all of it's God all the time you know what I mean <laughs> so I'm just gonna let that lie right there because I love I love the Jewish people I love my Jewish friends and not all of them are Jacobs okay not all of them are shrewd like this and deceptive and different things of that nature but you know, they, they take a lot from, uh, from this account, and we can see a little bit of that. So I hope that you'll look at Jacob and say, you know, that was probably stretching ethics a little bit there. We need to walk above board. We need to, we need to, we need to rely on God more and not ourselves. So notice here as Jacob and is, he's coming back, we see some theological lessons, we see some moral lessons and all the while recounting how Israel came to settle into Canaan prior to their sojourn in Egypt. So, notice first off with me tonight a reconciled reunion in verses 1 through 11. Jacob is about to face some danger. Now, he doesn't know that it's not real danger, right? We know, we can read the rest of the story and see that Esau is coming to him and it's, and it's on friendly terms. Right, Esau is looking forward to embracing his brother, but Jacob has no clue about any of that. And if you were in Jacob's shoes here, you'd probably be scared to death. You'd probably take some of the same steps that he did. But I want to tell you, when you have faith, it'll help give you courage when you're facing danger. Why do I say that? Connect the dots back to his encounter with this man that he wrestled with all night. I told you, I believe that's, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That he veiled himself a little bit. And, and Jacob couldn't see all that was going on. But by the time Jacob was finished, he said, I've seen God face to face and lived. He lived through that. So through that, you know, he, he's applying and he's looking at God's promises that God's going to fulfill His word to bring him back. God's the one that told him to leave Laban's house, right? That's what he shared with his wives. God revealed to him it was time to go back. God had already promised to him that he was going to be with him and protect him. Now, I see that there's some courage here. Well, before I get too far ahead of myself, notice his favoritism. 
We have to say a word about this because it's going to become a real problem in the story of Joseph to which we're, we're going to study next. Remember, Joseph had that coat of many colors. Well, Jacob, Jacob is known for favoritism in, in not the best sense. Okay, He's got two wives who each have two servants, so there's four mothers involved and at least uh, thir- you know, well, 12 recorded children up to this point because Benjamin's not going to be born yet. So we have 11 sons and one daughter by this time with four different women. You have Leah, and her handmaid is Zilpah. And you have Rachel, who's the favored one in in Jacob's eyes. And you have Bilhah, her handmaid. And through these four women, you're going to wind up with the 12 tribes of Israel. Dinah is going to be born to Leah. Uh, That's the only daughter recorded. I don't think that means that that's the only daughter Jacob had. It's just she's going to play into the story in in a way that allows her to be recorded. But here we have at least, you know what the scripture says, 11 sons and one daughter at this point. Let's look at Jacob's favoritism. Verse number 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him, how many? 400 men. That's 100 more than Abraham, you know, went all the way up to... Dan to go rescue Lot with. Esau's got 400. So what does he do? Here they come. He divides the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids that I just listed for you. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost. You see his favoritism? Well, if I've got to lose anybody, let's put them out there first. Leah and her children after, okay, they're going to be the next ones to go. But you know what? Rachel and Joseph, we're going to put them in the very, very back back. Because if there's any way I can protect them more, I want them to be the last ones that get taken. If uh, if it's got to go bad, maybe they can make it out. So you see his favoritism here? That means yes. So a note on Esau. I was doing some research and I came across an interesting article in um, in the Dictionary of Biblical imagery that I'd like to share with you because when you think about Esau, you think about him being this this intriguing character. Okay, listen to how they put it in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Esau is mentioned by name more than 80 times in the Bible. And he is a more major actor in Genesis than we tend to realize being named 60 times in the book. 60 times in Genesis alone. Listen to this now. He says, A number of important archetypes converge in Esau. He's the wild man. He's the dupe. He's the dim-witted victim. He's the villain. A would-be murderer. He's the problem child. The elder child supplanted by the younger. He's the progenitor of a nation. He's that profane person who's insensitive to spiritual values. The image is linked him, linked with him, include, you know, his hairy skin and his ruddy complexion, a proverbial mess of pottage, the field, a hunting of game, and a cry of protest when he discovers a life-changing deception and an embrace of a guilty brother in a famous reconciliation scene. There you have in one paragraph the whole life synopsis of this man named Esau. <laughs> that was a great description. I had to write it down. So it covers, I mean, pretty much head to toe. You know, everything that we think about Esau, how many different times does he show up? Have you ever thought about how much of a character he is when you read the narratives and the stories? Well, here is that climax of, uh, of the Esau we want, to, uh, we want to nobilize. You know, here's the Esau that he's put the past behind him and he has forgiven his, his deceiving brother. He doesn't want to murder him anymore. And lets bygones be bygones, and comes and embraces his brother. What a beautiful picture! But don't forget, this is the same Esau that had a root of bitterness in him that sprang up troubled him. Somewhere along the line, do you see a change that's occurred to Esau? Do you see how how maybe God has been working on him? Now I, I know I'm I'm kind of going beyond what the Scripture says here, but by way of implication, for a man to arrive at this point where he can put what happened behind him, there has to be some kind of working going on in his life. Whether it's God or whether it's him just working through things, 
the Bible's silent on on what brought about this change. But Esau is the father of Edom, and Edom eventually is going to be judged in the Scripture. But what a picture. So here we have you know, Jacob's favoritism, Esau's on the horizon. Yes, that Esau that we just described so magnificently with the, with the imagery that's in the Bible. And Jacob now, we're talking about courage. We're talking about faith. If Jacob's going to believe God that his promises are true, then Jacob's got to have a little more courage, don't you think? Well, where does this find its display? Verse number 3, we read... And he passed over before them. Who did? Jacob. Follow the story. Jacob passed over before them. Wait a minute. Hold on. If I go back and read earlier accounts, in chapter 32, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, into the land of Seir, country of Edom. He commanded them. Okay, so he says, I've got all this stuff. The messengers returned. Verse 7 of chapter 32, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people that was with him. Okay, that's the same thing I read in verse in chapter 33 almost. But there's a difference. He says, I'll work it out this way. If this happens, then I'll do this. If this happens, then I'll do that. And Hmm. In that account... Jacob is not in the front. Jacob sends them on. Because if you keep if you keep reading, it says here in verse 22, he rose up that night, took his two wives, his two women servants, eleven sons, passed over the fort Jabbok, and he took them and sent them over the brook. He sent them on ahead. He sent over that he had. In verse 24, Jacob is... Behind them now. He's behind them. And he says, it says there, he was left alone. With the account of wrestling with this man through the night, Jacob had his faith strengthened to the point where he's no longer sending all of them ahead of him. No, he divides them up just like he did before, and we see his favoritism in that. But Jacob is the one who is going in front now. And he is before them. Do you see that in verse 3? Jacob is in the front. He's not in the back anymore. He's in the front. He's the first one that's going to encounter Esau. Something happened. We mentioned there's some kind of transformation that occurred in Esau's life, right? Can you see the transformation that's occurred in Jacob after seeing God face to face? Something's different. He's not as afraid as he was before. He has more courage. He has more boldness. May I submit to you that's because his faith has been strengthened in that face-to-face meeting with God and clinging to Him and not letting go until he has the blessing. There's a change. He passed over before them and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This is a custom of the day. And in fact... Most of the extra-biblical writings we have uh, it deals with Egyptian pharaohs and their serfs or their servants. So, get this now. Back in the other account, before we got here, the, the thing that caused Jacob to have to run for his life was the fact that he got the birthright and the blessing. So, who's really the king in this scenario? Who's really the one that was prophesied to be on top? That the elder should serve the younger. And here's the younger presenting himself as a servant to the older. little flippity-floppity going on there, huh? Jacob bang himself seven times. Hey, you probably would too. Don't forget, he ran for his life some, you know, 20 years ago when he left Esau. As Jacob passed over Jabbok in the early morn, the glittering of spears, one writer put it, this was Edersheim in his Bible history, this was good. The glittering of spears and the lances in the sunlight among the dark pine forests betokened the approach of Esau with his 400 men. But Jacob had nothing more to fear. The only real contest was over. It was necessary when Jacob returned to take possession of the land, of the promises, 
That all that was past in his history should be just that. Past. P-A-S-T. And it was so. Never after that night, Edersheim went on to say, did Jacob again contend with carnal weapons. Hey, study the study life of Jacob. Is Edersheim right on that? Something's changed with Jacob. He's no longer fighting in his own strength. Remember because he was touched in his thigh? And now he goes with a limp? No, he's, he knows how to do warfare differently now. Spiritual warfare. He says he's not contending with carnal weapons anymore. And though the old name Jacob reappears again and again by the side of his new designation, it was to remind both him and us that Jacob, through halting, limping, if you will, is not dead, and that there must, that there is in us always the twofold nature alike of Jacob and of Israel. What now followed, we cannot tell better than the words of a recent German writer, Jacob, who in his contest with the angel of Jehovah had prevailed by prayer and entreaty, now also prevails by humility and modesty against Esau, who comes to meet him with 400 men. So, let's put it together. Jacob has favoritism. We've noted that. But his faith in the Lord, has been strengthened to the point where it's given him courage to go in front now instead of behind. Friend, how has your faith helped you to grow to be able to face circumstances that if, if it was left up to you and, and you didn't have the kind of faith you did, you'd be in the back? How has God stretched you to where you're ready to say, no, I'm going to go first. And I'm going to stand in this when nobody else... Will, this is my place right here. And I know that right here is where I'm going to be protected by God. He's going to watch over me. See, Jacob knows God's going to watch over him. And he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from giving God glory. Let's keep reading verse 4. Esau, so here's Jacob. One, two, three, four. I'm getting tired already. Five, six, seven. You know, he goes a little ways and bows down again. And bows. Here's Jacob. He's coming like this. Oh, but he's in front at least. And Esau, what does he do? He comes running. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jacob's like, uh-oh, did I bow too many times? What's going on? Esau's running. Uh, maybe by the time he gets close enough to see his face, Jacob can know, okay, he's not after my life. Uh, he's running. And he meets him. He embraced him. He fell on his neck and kissed him. That's a study to do in the Scriptures. Just get a concordance. And look at how many other times this happened. Something along these lines occurred. You're going to have a similar encounter not very far from here with Joseph and his brothers. He's going to fall on their neck. He's going to kiss them. Oh, there's one that's really precious. The account that our Lord gave of the prodigal son. Remember how the father received him when the prodigal came back home? I don't know. Maybe... It's a stretch, I know, but maybe, you know, this is just God's way of encouraging Jacob. Hey, you're coming back to the land of promise. You've wasted your sub. Well, he hasn't wasted his substance. So that breaks down right there because Jacob's a wealthy man by this time. But he's coming back and Esau, you know, falls on his neck, kissed him, they, and, and they wept. Both of them weeping. Can you imagine this reunion? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. In this meeting, <clears throat> the reconciled reunion, Jacob is going to give glory to God. They wept and he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. So Esau is putting it together. He says, uh, who, are the, who are those with thee? And he said, the children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Hey, brother, look what God did. Jacob left with nothing but his staff in his hand. That was it. That was all he had. The shoes on his feet, maybe the clothes on his back. Stopped at Bethel. God said, one day, Jacob, you're going to come back and my blessing's going to be on you. And Jacob said, since the Lord promised that, I'll serve him. And he goes up and spends all those years with Laban. And he comes back now. He says, brother, look. He didn't take any credit for it. He said, look what God did. Look what God did. 
in spite of who Jacob is. I mean, if we're going to go on a system of merit here, right? <laughs> Why do the wicked prosper? Hey, Jacob's not, not a righteous person. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. The only reason he has anything is because God made a promise to Abraham. And it's God's word that is coming through here. Not Jacob. And in spite of who Jacob is, everything Jacob has touched has prospered. And Laban has recognized it. And now Esau recognizes it. And he says, what's all this? Jacob says, look what God did. Look what God did. He's graciously given thy servant. Notice the word gracious. It's a key, key word in the Hebrew here. Cain, grace. And you're going to see the theme of grace over and over in these verses. He's graciously given it. I don't deserve it, but he's done it. Then the handmaids came near, and they and their children, right, because they were first. They were putting the first in the line. So it kind of worked out the other way. They're the first ones to be able to, to, to greet Esau. So the handmaidens came near their children. They bowed themselves just like Jacob did. Leah also with her children came near and they bowed themselves just like Jacob did. And after came Joseph near and Rachel. Now, uh, somebody's pointed out there's, there, there's a little bit of play going on with the words because you have Joseph and then Rachel and then you have, um, before that you'll have Rachel and Joseph. So the word order there, they bowed themselves. God's grace. God's grace. Friend, have you known God's grace in your life? How can you see that here in this passage? God's grace has been evident in Jacob's life. God's grace in the Old Testament, hey, we serve a gracious God. Do we not? It's God's grace that sent Jesus to give us all the riches in Christ Jesus that we have in Him. Friend, if it weren't for God's grace, think about it like this, Romans 5.8. But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about all that you have in Jesus. Not because of anything you've done, but because of a promise that He made from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus willingly going and dying on Calvary, paying for your and my sins. And we have all the riches and glory in Christ Jesus, seated in heavenly places in Him. And no more Colossians tells us, are those handwriting of the ordinances against us? No, we've been freed from that through the, the obedience of Christ. He, was, he humbled Himself and became obedient even unto death. The death of the cross, Paul says. To the point of death He went for you so that you could have His riches. God's grace has showed up in Jacob's life. And Jacob didn't deserve it. But it goes all the way back to Genesis 17 and that covenant. That covenant that God cut with himself that he promised he would bless Abraham and his seed and all the descendants after that. And every family of the earth will be blessed. You and I are sitting here today talking about God's grace on Jacob. How many thousands of years ago? Because every family of the earth was blessed when Jesus Christ was incarnated and came. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Finding favor. Verses 8 through 11. This is where I point out to you uh, what Spurgeon noted here. If you look at verse, um, I think it's verse 9 here, there's a phrase Esau says, I have enough. And if you look down at verse number, oh, I don't have the numbers listed here. Let me look in my actual printed copy. Verse uh, 10 and 11. Yeah, same words. Verse number 9. Esau said, what did Esau say? Read it out loud together. You can do better than that. And Esau said, I have enough, Verse 11. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me. And what did Jacob say? Because I have enough. They both say the same thing. Spurgeon pointed out, here's a godless man. <laughs> Esau, who says he has enough, and then here's a godly man who says he has enough. What are the differences between the two having enough? Interesting that he would point that out. It's rare, as it is pleasing, to meet 
with a man who has enough, Spurgeon said. The great majority are craving for more. Here we see two persons who were content. It's true they were both wealthy men. These are often more greedy than poor. To increase the wonder, we have here not only two men, but two brothers, and two brothers of dissimilar disposition, each saying, I have enough. Where shall we find two brothers like these? Surely their father's blessing was upon these contented twins. They were great wonders. An ungodly man who has enough. Because Esau has other faults, there's no necessity that he should be discontented and grasping. Contentment is a moral excellence as much as a spiritual grace. Unconverted men are sometimes contented with their lot in this life. You ever seen that door knocking? <laughs> you ever seen that out visiting, talking with people that they don't have Jesus. It's clear they're lost. They don't want Him in their life, but they're content. They're content without Him. Then he says, here's a godly man who has enough. Jacob, if you can call Jacob godly, right? He says, it's a pity that this is not true of every Christian man. Here, here, Spurgeon. I say amen to that. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. He says, it's delightful to have enough. Contentment surpasses riches. Oh, it sure does, doesn't it? It's a pleasure to have somewhat to spare for the poor. Think about that. Being able to have enough and then abundantly over. My cup runs over that I can, I can pour that over on others. That's a blessed place to live. It's best of all to have all things. <clears throat> I have all things. He says you could translate it that way perhaps. Heartily satisfied. <laughs> he gave some illustrations. If you, This is in his notes. His uh, sermon notes. He says a poor Christian woman who was breaking her fast. We don't really talk about it like that anymore. We just call it breakfast, don't we? <laughs> breaking her fast upon a crust and a cup of water. That's all she's got. A crust and a cup of water. She exclaimed, What? All of this in Christ too? Think about that the next time you sit down to your beans and rice. What? I get beans and rice and I got Jesus too? Hallelujah. In all seriousness, that's not sarcasm. That's, that's true joy. Puritan preacher asking the blessing on a herring and potatoes. He said this, he said, Lord, we thank thee that thou hast ransacked sea and land to find food for thy children. It's a prayer you don't hear very often. Ransacked the whole sea for a herring. Ransacked the whole land for a potato. And there it is. Food for thy children. Thank you, Lord. Next time you have a morsel. Is not the bee as well contented with feeding on the dew or sucking from a flower as the ox that grazeth on the mountains? Contentment lies within a man, in the heart. And the way to be comfortable is not by having our barrels filled, but our minds quieted. The contented man, saith Sanaka, is the happy man. Discontent robs a man of the power to enjoy what he possesses. A drop or two of vinegar, vinegar will sour a whole glass of wine, Thomas Watson wrote. Jacob's reconciliation with God has to be followed with reconciliation between him and Esau. Do you see this reunion and reconciliation? Jacob right with God, Jacob now right with his brother, the difference between pre-Peniel Jacob who brings up the rear and post-Peniel Jacob who leads the procession to Esau bowing himself, saying accept my gift, his motives. Notice secondly a resistant return. Now the only reason I point this out is because Jacob isn't resistant to get to Canaan. He's resistant to have to go to Seir with Esau. Get your Bible map out. Turn over to the back and look at where the Dead Sea is and I'll make it real easy for you. Seir is on one side of the Dead Sea. Canaan is on the other. And so if Jacob's going to go with Esau down to Mount Seir, he's going to wind up far, far away from where the promised land and the blessings are. So crafty Jacob here has to work away to... Well, I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't want to pretend that he's being 
above board when he's not, or vice versa. But in essence, what he tells Jacob here is he gives him a fluff promise. And he says, oh, you know how, how tender the children in the flocks are. If, you, if we overdrive them, if we drive them too hard, they'll die tomorrow. We can't push them that hard. And so then Esau says, well, let me leave some, some of my people with you and we'll help you. He says, they can't drive them. No, we'll go on softly. That is, we're going to take our time, but we're going to come down to Mount Seir and we'll come see you, Esau. Never happened. Esau's content with it. He says, all right, you take care of your own. We're going to head on back. And he heads down to Mount Seir. And Jacob, I mean, I don't know, but the way that I read this, I don't think he ever had the intent to go down there to begin with. Is this the old deceiver coming out? Yeah, we'll come see you in Mount Seir. The next time they meet is going to be at dear old dad's funeral. So a resistant return. Jacob's not going to go all the way down to Seir. He has it in his mind. He's going back to Canaan. He's got to get to Canaan. That's the land of promise. That's where God told him to go. Right? So this is a potential diversion from promise. And that covers verses 12 to 15. So Esau, in essence, is heading southwest. Jacob, then, is going to head northeast. Is that opposite directions or what? Think about the compass. Jacob's going to come and he'll wind up being a shepherd in Succoth. Verse 16, So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built him a house. Oh, whoa, wait, hold on. What did Jacob do? He's settling down. He says, my, my rambling days are done. We're going to set up shop here, and he's going to shepherd his sheep in Succoth. He built him a house, made booths, note the word booths, because the translators here have given you the translation of the word succoth, and they point it out to you. Okay, what does the word, the Hebrew word succoth mean? Booth. So he sets up, in essence, like tents for his cattle and for his sheep. He just builds places for them there. He builds himself a house, and, and he begins to settle down in succoth. So Jacob is now beginning to settle down after decades and decades of roaming, leaving home, heading north, being with Laban, you know, the lifestyle of a shepherd up there, he comes down, and now the dust is beginning to settle. He says, all right, I made it out of Laban's clutches. I made it out of Esau's clutches. It's time to start settling in. Builds a house and sucketh. Now, verse 18, we see him settling in Shalem. And that's S-H-A-L-E-M. Settling in Shalem. Let's talk a little bit about Shechem. Shechem, in biblical history, had a checkered history as a religious and a political center, and this will be brief, but just note this now, um, you can compare other, other passages, Joshua 24, Judges 9, 1 Kings 12. So uh, there was a, a writer that observed this, and uh, it was Hess, and he wrote this. He says, Thus the seemingly contradictory themes of a lawlessness and a religious center. Talking about Shechem. The lawlessness that centers around Shechem, the political center that Shechem will become among the pagans. He says that dominates the biblical texts concerning Shechem. So in the case of Jacob, we find it appropriate that the man of moral contradictions established himself at Shechem upon arriving in Canaan. Why Shechem, Jacob? Why are you going to Shechem? Now, Shechem is an interesting history. Sychar is here. Okay, this is one of those places where you go and you stand here in Bible days, uh, you, you stand here today and you open your Bible and you say, oh, okay, I've got to put layer upon layer. Here in this place, this is where Jacob came and he settled down in Shechem. Oh, this is where Genesis 34 is about to happen too, by the way. And that's not a pretty story. This is also where Jacob is going to have a well in Sychar, and later on our Savior is going to say, I must needs go through Samaria. The same Samaria that uh, Ahab is going to set up a kingdom in the northern kingdom, right here in Shechem, will eventually become the capital city of the northern tribes of Israel. Right here is where our Savior is going to say, I must needs go through Samaria, and he's going to sit by Jacob's well. And he's going to take a Samaritan woman and show her how he's the Messiah. And she's going to find the water of eternal life. 
Shechem. So as we read this, he's settling in Shalem. Now, I want to honor the King James translators here. I think this is beautiful the way they render it. Now, um, some people would say they made a mistake in appropriating this as a proper noun. I'm going to back them up and say, I think it needs to sit just like it is right here. Because you can not only see the proper name of the place, I think there really is a place called Shalem, and it's spelled even differently. Uh, There's a cross-reference in the Psalms, I think, where it's spelled S-H-L-I-M. So there is a real place called Shalem, but it also has such, such a truth here because it comes from the Hebrew word Shalom. Shalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Shalom. When you're in Israel, the way you say hello, the way you say goodbye is Shalom. And Shalom means peace. So this little town outside of Shechem, a city near Shechem, Jacob's going to settle down here. And, uh, you know, in this day, don't think like, you know, metropolis of Denver. Think of like, you know, really quaint, uh, smaller populated areas. But, it, but it's a city nonetheless. And so Shalem has the idea that he comes in in peace. Is that not a direct fulfillment of Genesis 28? Let me go back. I think it's verse 12. You've you got to see it because the word, the word is like right there. Let me see if I guessed, if, if I remembered the right verse. Um, no, that was the latter. <clears throat> Where is it? It's the word peace. And it's actually in the promise. Uh, let's see. I don't want to take time to, to read through the whole chapter to find it. But if you look in Genesis 28, you will find where it says that the Lord would bring him back in peace. The Lord would bring him back in peace. And I, I see that as a direct fulfillment here. 21, did you find it? So I came again to my father's house in peace. That's the verse. I just had 12 transposed. <laughs> Dyslexia kicking in there. So that I come again to my father's house in what? And so we read here, and Jacob came to peace. He came peacefully to this place in Shechem. It's exactly what God said would happen, right? What a beautiful picture. Now, I also need to point out to you here that Jacob is the patriarch of Israel. Just like granddaddy did, he's coming in and he is going to follow in the footsteps of Abraham as he settles down in Shechem. Remember, Abraham came here, but there was no city when he came. And when Abraham came, uh, he's going to build an altar. When Abraham came, he's going to buy some land of the sons of Heth. Jacob's going to do the same thing. So I think through this, what Moses is trying to help us to see is that the baton is being passed to Jacob. Abraham is the father of the Jews. Jacob is the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so just like Abraham did, he's come through, except for Jacob doesn't go as far as he's supposed to. Now notice what he does here, okay? Right here in the center of an idolatrous land, um, this was Dr. Morris in his commentary. He said, in the center of an idolatrous land, he had established a new center of worship for the true God. I thought, you know, that's exactly what God does with church planners all across our country and all around the world. He takes people like, um, oh, we just prayed for Rexburg, Idaho. We just prayed for a missionary family that went up there in the heart of Mormon country. Read that on the back of your bulletin that you got tonight. Just read what what uh, what what they say about about the area. Spiritual warfare. As you know, we serve in a heavily populated LDS area. That's Latter-day Saints. 98%. So she explains here, out of every, how many people you meet? Out of every 100 people you meet, only two or three of them will not be inundated with Mormonism. Two or three people. And God takes this family and sends them up there to plant an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church in the heart of Mormon country. Now, Shechem is not Mormon country. Not in Jacob's day. But you see what God's doing here? He takes Jacob and he, and he uses him in this area to set up a place where the one true God can be worshipped. It's part of God's program, part of His plan. 
perhaps. But notice how God's Word, God's Word, not Jacob's cunning, it's God's Word that has brought him back into the land, into the land. Think about uh, what Jesus said with the mustard seed. The smallest grows into the largest. Friend, I don't know what's going what's gonna to happen, but I just have faith that what God is going to do here in this area of Colorado and other places where we can impact, you start with a little grain of a mustard seed. And we started with a grain of faith size of a mustard seed some eight and a half years ago. And now, almost nine years later, we have a place in Broomfield where we can open the Bible and worship God together and we just pray that God will continue to bless. Verse 20, and we're done. Falling short of vows. Wait a minute, Pastor. This, is, this looks like a great verse. Why are you saying he's falling short? Because of where he's building this altar. It's not Bethel. He's in Shechem. And I pointed out to you as we began, there's going to be some serious problems. God's chastening hand is going to come to Jacob because he's not where God wants him yet. Let that sink in. Where is it that you're not going all the way? It's time to go all the way for God. Now, he's loving, he's gracious. But an altar here, this shows us the way of atonement in the Old Testament. Let me remind you. All these sacrifices, all the way back to Adam, through Abraham, through uh, Abel, uh, and, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the priesthood, all of these sacrifices are pointing to the one time, once for all, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so Jacob here is pointing to Jesus when he builds this altar. And what did he call it? God, the God of Israel. El Elohi Israel. That's great, Jacob, but you're not in Bethel. You didn't keep your word. Go back to chapter 28. Jacob made a vow. Jacob made a promise to God. And he thinks somewhere along the line, this will be good enough. Let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay. If you say you're going to do something, friend, you need to do it. God's yea is always yea, and His nay is always nay. And how many times do we fall short of that, and we suffer consequences in our life because of it? Jacob's trials are going to come while he's in Shechem. Let me make this a little more solid. There's an account in chapter 34 that I'm not looking forward to expounding. But as I said earlier, if I'm going to be a faithful expositor of the Scripture, we've got to cover this. There's another story that lines up with this, I think, that will apply this and illustrate this for us. When we talk about David, David had a black blot on his life when it comes to him and Bathsheba. And David, though he was the man after God's own heart, he didn't go all the way for God in this. He stayed back at the time when kings go to war. That's what the Scripture says. He lingered, he, lo he looked, he lusted, all of that. And we know the end of the story. Bathsheba got pregnant. The baby died. That's not the end of the story. Nathan comes to David and he says, Thou art the man after telling the story about the sheep, right? David confesses, he repents, and, and he gets right with God. Jacob, by this time, how much deception has been in his life? How unfaithful has he been in marital relationships with multiple wives, multiple mothers of all these children? Okay, I'm just saying here, it works when we do it God's way. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Think about what Nathan prophesied to David. He said, basically the sword's not going to depart from your house. What we're about to encounter in Genesis 34, I want you to think about David. David had a son named Amnon, and he had a daughter named Tamar. And Amnon did wicked things to Tamar. And then Absalom rose up and killed him. 
killed Amnon and then ran for his life to get vengeance off of what occurred to his sister. Genesis 34. Genesis 34. Genesis 34. Dinah's going to go down and see the daughters of the land. And the son of Hamor is going to see her. His name's Shechem. And he's going to defile her. Dinah's going to get defiled. And then Simeon and Levi are going to rise up and take vengeance for their sister. Do you see the parallel? You have to. Be sure your sin will find you out. There will be consequences. Jacob is, is on the way back to Canaan. He stops short of Bethel. And he says, I'll build an altar here to God in, in Shechem and call it Elo, Elohi Israel. And that will be good enough for him. Jacob didn't go all the way for God. He didn't keep his word. And in Shechem, he's going to have such trials come to his family. Because he fell short. Above all of this, we see God is faithful. God is gracious. How gracious is our God? How good is Jehovah? How loving kind is He? How patient is He with us? And yet, how much of a sinner am I? And God, His Word is faithful through it all. Why the halfway obedience? Wearsby summarized it. He said he's scheming instead of trusting. Jacob is bowing instead of limping. Uh, Jacob is pleading instead of witnessing. He'd seen God face to face, but he says nothing to Esau about that. He was made a prince and he's acting like a pauper. He's promising but not performing. He says, I'll come see you and see her, and he never shows up. Why the halfway obedience? Professor Ian Dugwood muses on this. He says, why was that? What was Jacob doing settling down at Shechem and raising an altar when he should have been continuing on to Bethel to raise the altar there? Where had he first had the dream? It was at Bethel. Did Jacob think that Shechem was a better site for trading for his flocks, perhaps? Uh, he thought it didn't matter. I mean, after all, Bethel's only 20 miles away or so. I mean, I can go whenever it suits once he got settled, why be so precise in these things? Shechem or Bethel? What's it going to be? Shechem or Bethel? It's really all the same, isn't it? I mean, I'm close enough. Indeed, it is not, he said. Whatever his motivation, Jacob's compromise and his failure to follow through with complete obedience to what he had vowed would cost him and his family dearly, as we see in the following chapter. Almost obedience is never enough. Did you hear that? Almost obedience is never enough. Almost. Obedience. As a parent and as a child, we understand this, don't we? When a parent tells a child to take the trash out, and the child takes it and leaves that bag by the back door and doesn't take it all the way to the can, is that obedience? That's halfway obedience. That's Shechem. And God wants Jacob and Bethel. Halfway obedience is really disobedience. And so, almost obedience is never enough. Being in the right ballpark might be sufficient when we're watching a ball game, but it's certainly not enough when it comes to obeying God. Nothing short of full obedience is required. Wow. It's always a delusion to imagine that we have obeyed when we've only partially obeyed. And this is eternally true when dealing with God. Oh, Pastor, you're really coming down on us. On... No, I want you to know, there, there are eternal destinies at stake with this partial obedience stuff. Are we going to come to Shechem when it comes to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we going to go all the way to Bethel? Because falling short of obeying to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you with me? Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So many people want to stop short at Shechem and say, it all looks good. Hey, I'm close enough, right? One day they're going to find out they're dead wrong. Because they didn't go all the way. They didn't go all the way to Bethlehem. Lord, hear our prayer. There's a hymn that says this. 
O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O love that wilt not let me go. Jacob is not going to be let go of God until he's back to Bethel. And you'll see him back in Bethel in chapter 35. He's getting there. But God's love's not going to let him go till he is in full surrender, full submission, back to Bethel. That's a future message for a future time. Jacob's return to Canaan land shows divine intervention with both reconciliation and a peaceful return. He returned and settled in Shalem just like God said he would. God's word is faithful. God is fully capable of carrying out His promises despite our shortcomings. Let God take care of His yea. You just worry about your yea and your nay and make sure it lines up and you do what you're saying you'll do. How faithful and gracious is God? How selfish, how sinful are we?